Welcome to Cracking Charity Chat, learning from the leaders with me, Beth Crackles. In this episode, I'm talking with Carl Wilding, Director of Policy and Volunteering at NCVO. I first met Carl when he came to lecture on voluntary sector policy at Cass Business School when I was doing the Charity Masters a few years ago. I don't want to be too grandiose about it, but it was kind of transformational because I didn't have a clue about voluntary sector policy or indeed how policy was made, uh, garbage can models and the likes. A couple of years after that, I ended up working at NCVO and got to know Carl a little bit more. He speaks with real clarity and conviction about some of the issues facing the sector. I really like that he can be quite controversial, but very sort of rational about that. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed chatting to him. Uh, There's a load of uh, information and resources within this podcast. So I really hope you enjoy listening to. Hi, Carl. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, that's your few asked me. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I haven't seen you for ages and we've had really, really good people doing this. So, yeah, I'm dead sure that you've asked me to do one as well. Thank you. If you could sort of introduce yourself and your role at NCVO, for you to say what NCVO is and does. So I'm Carl Wilding. Uh, I am the Director of Public Policy and Volunteering at NCVO. Uh, I have an and in my job title, which uh, is a reflection of a restructure a few years ago, uh, which I'm sure other people have experienced when there's not as many of you as there used to be, so you get an and. So NCVO, I I think, is a fantastic organisation that is about trying to help charities make a bigger difference in terms of what they do. We think it's charities and volunteers out there that are the heroes in all this stuff, and what we want to try and do is shape the uh, the environment for them in terms of how we relate to government or what media and the press think of the sector so that charities well as i said can make a bigger difference and we want to support them and work with them so that it can be more efficient and effective when i see my family and i'm and they ask me sort of what i do i, I sort of tend to sort of say well uh, every time you give a tenner to a charity uh, we want to help them spend that and make every penny uh, uh, that you give them make a bigger difference. Okay, that's an interesting way of articulating it. Good. So, an NCVO is celebrating its centenary this year. Have you got anything to tell us about that? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because 100 years, you inevitably look at what you've done and you look back. And it's interesting that we'll, we'll probably talk about diversity, for example, in a minute. And if you go back 30 odd years, you'll find that NCVO's chief exec was Usher Prashar, now Baroness Usher Prashar. So we were thinking about diversity a long time ago when we were publishing things like Black on Board by Tesayak Peke. We've thought about how we have changed over that time. So we used to be the National Council for Social Service and changed our name about 40 years ago. Apparently it took 10 years of discussion to decide. But I guess the really important thing is that when you're thinking about an anniversary like a centenary, it's not just about looking back, it's about looking forward. And it's about learning from the past. So, you know, that famous quote that those who don't know their history, they're destined to repeat the failures of, of, of the past. So we want to use this as an opportunity to look forward. And I guess as part of that, we'll be thinking about the fact that that Stuart Etherington, our chief exec for 25 years, is going to be retiring this year. So we'll be looking forward under some new leadership. So, I mean, inevitably we're going to change and, and we've got to think about what comes next. And I think we've got to think about how we think about what comes next. Because... 
we're sort of, it's a funny old time, isn't it? Sort of with Britain leaving the European Union and so on, and people will generally, leaders generally will sort of talk about, you know, I mean, it's, there's a lot of volatility, there's a lot of uncertainty at the minute. And I just sort of wonder in thinking about what's next, is it really the best way forward to come up with a five-year plan about what we do I think we've got to be a bit more agile and we've got to think about how do we how do we how do we plan but how do we plan in a way that enables us to respond to a world that that feels like it is changing very quickly so what do you think that framework looked like for creating a, a flexible kind of strategy well, don't think we know quite yet, uh, but I think one of the things that we have learned over the last few years is that we've invested heavily in digital. We think that the only way that we're going to be able to reach people out there in, in the sort of the volumes that we want to, and I guess the volume of, of organisations that, that sort of need help, is that we need digital services and tools to sort of help us do that. And in doing that, we've come to the the conclusion that that we have to be agile in how we do that that you know in those days where you would put a towel around your head and sit in a darkened room and dream up this brand new sort of digital service or website and then release it to the world and hope that millions of people will use it we don't do that anymore we're very much more iterative test and learn see what it is that people think is working for them and I guess my feeling is that that's a way of working that increasingly we don't just apply to digital products and services it's a way of thinking that we have to apply to just services uh, and products yeah yeah okay so you mentioned um so Stuart is obviously retiring this year and there's the recruitment process for that going on at the moment what do you think the outcome of that might be you know there's a lot of chat isn't there people writing articles about what CVO should do about this what's your view on that well the outcome is that we're going to change and I think the the, the challenge for whoever sort of the, the, the new chief exec is, whoever the staff are here, whoever the trustees and the volunteers are here, is that we have to think about how do we change so that we remain relevant? You might, for example, as a fundraiser, sort of talk about income generation and funding. It's the biggest challenge facing the sector. I'd argue, actually, the biggest challenge always facing us is remaining relevant, is yeah. working in a way that reflects how people live their lives, providing them with advice and support that reflects how they want to do things. And I think we've got to make sure that we keep remaining relevant as NCVO. I think we are. I think we're a really good organisation. But there's always things that we can do better. And so the outcome has got to be, we've got to continue learning. We've got to continue getting better. Digital, I think, will be at the heart of that. And I think we'll keep pushing on that. But there'll be other changes that we make. Again, I guess the challenge is that we have to be clear about changing things to make us better, not just changing for the sake of changing, because there's a sort of a sense that, oh, well, NCVR has to change. Yeah, yeah. So I'd completely agree with you that NCVO is an amazing organisation. And from working here, the team that I was working in at the time, and well, the whole organisation, we're, we're probably the smartest, most intelligent bunch of people that I've ever worked amongst, to be honest, which was really inspiring. I think a challenge for NCVO is that, so you've got like 14,000 members. Yeah. But obviously the, there's a lot more charities in the sector. How do you make sure that you are the voice of the sector because obviously it's got such breadth and depth hasn't it yeah i think what i would sort of say in response to that is that 
I think you have to be honest with yourself that this is not a challenge that we'll find a solution to in mm-hmm. in six months time and it, and and then everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. It's a tension I think rather than a challenge and it's a tension that will always require managing. That unity of voice you mean being able to represent such a diverse range of charities. Well, for a membership organisation, there's always a tension in terms of leading and managing. So just before I joined NCVO back in the midst of time, NCVO uh, was doing work about the national minimum wage. And uh, at the time, lots of charities didn't want the national minimum wage to be introduced because all they saw, or an important part of what they saw, was the impact upon their cost base. And NCVO led its membership through a period then where it supported the introduction of the national minimum wage against the wishes of a number of its members. So it's not as simple as how do you represent. So there's that tension between leadership and representation. It's incredible that that was even an issue. If you think about where the sector's at now around equality and gender and pay. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? And I guess this is the point I'm making about relevance. And one of the things that uh, that people will say to me every now and then is that, well, uh, NCVO, you, you've really got to do something about this fact that, that the public don't understand charities and you've got to do a big piece of work to help them understand charities. Possibly, yes, and, and, and we do things about that. Mm-hmm. But actually, one of the challenges that I think we have sometimes is that charities don't always understand the public. And we've got to make sure that we're putting just as much effort into helping and working with organisations so that we remain relevant and you remain relevant by understanding where the public are at. Sometimes that will be about changing what the public think about issues and what they do, but it's also about making sure that we understand how they want to do social change. Especially, I mean, in in sort of the, the days that we're in now, I'd argue to you that we're in a world now where where donors and supporters they think they're the heroes, not charities, mm-hmm. and they see they see that relationship flipping around between supporters and donors and charities where they're not our supporters anymore. We are their charities. Yeah. We are meant to be supporting them do social change. Yeah. And we've got to help the sector sort of recognise that and sort of work with that. That is a lot easier to understand conceptually than to plan to deliver and meet that change though isn't it absolutely it is and and so you you asked me the question before about how ncvo is changing and 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 has changed and and i really think that sort of going forward we have to sort of think about our tone of voice and i think we have to be humble and i think we have to recognize actually that we don't have all the answers to this stuff it's a bit like this sort of new world of volunteering and social action where the way that people want to get involved now it's more social it's less loyal it's about smaller amounts of time rather than commitment it's about less loyalty and so on and we can see organisations where that style of social action works really well. Mm. But if you're in a heavily regulated area, for example, where the volunteers that you want to work with, you uh, uh, need to have a high level of skills and so on, those sorts of models don't work there. So I think we've got to ac- accept that we don't have all the answers there. And as a membership organisation, one of the things that we can really do is recognise that we aren't always the experts and that what we can do is, is find organisations 
organizations who are navigating their way through these changing times and then try and connect them with other organizations and see if we can almost have a catalytic role there Mm -hmm. rather than just thinking oh well we're in London and we're the experts and we have the answers to everything Yeah. yeah okay so trusting charities yeah, why haven't you sorted that out, Carl? <laughs> oh, let me be more specific with the question. It's so, not an uncommon question. <laughs> for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think like we were talking about something else earlier is um, it's really easy to just conflate a number of issues, isn't it, here? Yeah. So we've got things like public understanding yeah. that administration and, and overheads are part of the cause, going back to that TED Talk, which I saw circulated again this week. I'm like, wow, that's something like 10 years old, isn't it? And we're still rolling it out. But I mean, rightly so. We've got charities apportioning costs differently within their accounts and some yeah. people calling for different accounting practice. And then, you know, we've got all the chat around the pence in the pound. So where's the conversation going with this? Because I saw something from um, Kate Lee's blog about the golden formula so so she was saying we need to talk about reach we need to talk about cost and we need to talk about impact equally essentially that's what she was saying wasn't it which I feel like a lot of organizations actually try to do but it feels like this conversation it's like it's a circular thing isn't it and every time the daily mail do something we have the same conversation again and it's not unusual I mean I wasn't surprised that the the mail drew out um, international aid with save the children and Mary Stokes, I mean, it's just all a bit predictable from them. So where, where's it going and how can we shift it along this conversation? So first of all, before I came to NCVO, I spent far too long at university, which included doing stuff that essentially is about history of voluntary action. Yeah. And if you were to look at some of the newspapers around the turn of the century, if you were to look at some of the journals like the British Medical Journal that reported on charities that were hospitals, the voluntary hospital system, and they were all complaining about fundraising and fundraising costs and so on. So so first of all, I think if you take a longer sort of historical look, the first thing that you sort of have to recognise is that this has always been with us, yeah. I went to a uh, I went to a company recently that does salary surveys for the voluntary sector and have done them for about twenty or thirty years and they have their press cuttings all in the uh, in the reception at the front and I was looking at the press cuttings from thirty years ago, complaining about fat cat salaries in charities following the introduction of the national lottery as it was then. So first of all, it's always been with us and I guess the message there is that I think we have to just be calm and not overreact to individual stories. I think is my first point. Digital has, of course, fundamentally changed that. You know, we are all armchair auditors now. We all have access to data and we can all scrutinise organisations in a way that we couldn't 10, 15 years ago. So clearly something has changed there. Thirdly, thinking about trust. It's where I get a little bit frustrated and, and possibly even a little bit worried in a conversation with you about this in a podcast It's quite difficult, it strikes me, to talk about trust as an issue without appearing, on the one hand, complacent and saying it's not a problem, and on the other hand, hysterical and saying if we don't change everything immediately, we're all going to... It will be the end of charity, as the chair of the regulator suggested a few months ago. (laughs) The way we've thought about this is that you might have come across someone called Baroness O'Nora O'Neill, Cambridge philosopher, uh, and some of some people might have come across her about a decade ago when she did the BBC's Reef Lectures, and she did them on trust. 
and she came and spoke at the NCVO VSSN research conference and and she was actually incredibly skeptical about most of the opinion polls that you see on trust in institutions. Essentially, she thinks they're not worth the paper that they're written on. And she argues, for example, that that making a sort of a, a generic observation about do you trust charities is very, very different to do you trust this specific charity that you actually have some knowledge and you have a relationship mm. with. So I mention that because I think we have to be cautious in interpreting this sort of uh, uh, change in trust. What we have done, though, is that I, I, I'm, not, I'm not complacent about this stuff, but what we have done is that we've looked at what are some of the factors that are driving people to say that they don't trust charities. And it's probably worth saying at this point, when they say they don't trust charities, they predominantly mean larger charities. Yeah, yeah. Because trust, quite frequently, it's, it's a function of having a personal relationship with someone. And if you're a large charity, that's not always possible. And when people talk to us about the things that they were concerned about, they talk to us about salaries, senior people. They talk to us about transparency and not always being able to find the information that they wanted about organisations. They talked about fundraising methods and they talked about administration costs as well. Uh, a couple of other things as well, but, but those were some of the main ones. So in answer to your question, why haven't we done anything about trust? I guess my response to you is that I don't think you can do something about trust per se. I don't think you can just go out with an advertising campaign that says, charities are wonderful. They, they do all these fantastic things. Don't worry about the fact that we're sort of, we're screwing the environment whilst we're doing that. Just focus on all the fantastic stuff that you do. What you've instead got to do is say, you've told us you're concerned about senior salaries. So we've done a review of senior salaries and we've produced advice for charities about how to set your salaries and then importantly, how to communicate with the public about how and why you made that decision. Stuart Etherington led a review of fundraising that led to the to a new fundraising regulator. So we've done something about fundraising. Unless I'm wrong, I'm not seeing many reports about big problems in fundraising now in the same way that we had a few years ago. Um, we've done bits of work about transparency and openness. We've produced a guide on how to talk about your organisation. But there's more to do about that and... And there's probably a conversation there, Beth, about the distinction between transparency and openness. Because I think lots of people talk about transparency, but I think what we want is openness. We've just been doing work this year about safeguarding. We've just produced ethical principles for charities as well, following concerns earlier this year about conduct at work. Uh, uh, in charities. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do all the time is we're trying to say to people, when you have concerns about the sector, we are going to look at them and we are going to sort themselves out. And as a result of that, charities, we are going to reform and we're going to modernise in terms of what we do. There's probably a next step that we need to think about in the future in terms of where do we go next. And that is, if we can go out and we can say to the world that charities have changed, there's going to be a point in the future at some point where I want us to be able to come out and say, and the world is changed by charities. 
and that actually modern charity, which we've tried to, which we've reformed and is much better, we can talk to you with confidence now that they work in a way that fits with your with your values, and that's the basis for a trusting relationship. But also, they working with you, they help you as donors and supporters make a huge difference. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. Lots of really great examples of what NCVO has done as well. Yeah, I do, I do sometimes feel that NCVO feels a step removed from what people think about in their roles day to day within a charity. You know, if you're really focused on service delivery or if you're really focused on fundraising, you kind of forget that all this stuff is happening in the background. That's not a criticism yeah. of NCVO. It's more a criticism of people working within the sector unaware of the broader environment that they're working in, I guess, really. And, and if I might... If I might be self-critical for a moment, it sort of strikes me that we've produced things like we we produced a website called How Charities Work, yeah, I think which is it's it's aimed at the public in terms of answering some very basic questions that they might have about how charities work, but it's also aimed at people like you, Beth, or or, or other fundraisers because I, I, the way I always thought about this is that when you go home for a wedding or a funeral or a christening or sort of something like that, and you bump into that relative that you haven't seen for ten years and they say, what do you do now, Carl? And you say, well, I, uh, I work for a charity. And the first question that you get back is, well, how do you pay the mortgage then? So how charities work is meant to be, can we answer those sorts of simple questions that, that, that help people better understand what we do? So the self-critique there is, we've got some absolutely banging resources I'm not quite sure we've done enough to get them out there into the hands of people who can then be the advocates, not for NCVO, but can be the advocates mm -hmm. for the sector. Yeah. We have a million people working in, in in the voluntary sector in the UK. That, that should be the front line of our advocates going out, telling people that actually charities aren't this sort of Victorian sort of idea that lots of you hold. Yeah. yeah. So I'm conscious that we've got 10 minutes and I wanted to talk about diversity and funding. So <laughs> best crack on with it. Diversity, loads of stuff about diversity in the sector at the moment. Let's not talk about that because a million other people are, are talking about that at the moment. And I thought we'd go topical with the David Lammy, Stacey Dooley yeah. incident. My stance, first of all, is that I'm not an international development expert. So there is, a, there is an element of that debate that's about international development organizations that I don't think I'm qualified to comment on and and actually almost and, and and this is something that I did read on Twitter my first stance on this is that when these sorts of arguments arise it's amazing how suddenly everybody is an expert yeah. so my first stance yeah. is recognizing there are some things that actually we aren't experts on uh, and, and that sometimes contributing to the conversation doesn't actually help resolve it yeah, and and we mentioned earlier that there are a number of issues being conflated here as well about, it, like you mentioned, like international aid, the model of that and various other bits. So, yeah, yeah. sorry, go on. So I guess my, my second observation is that I think uh, Comic Relief themselves recognise that the messaging around fundraising and that sort of white saviour model is something that they want to move away from. And, and indeed, I think they have moved away from and and I think as a sector that what's best about our sector is where we are moving away from being the voice of to a voice with and a voice yeah. behind or 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 putting forward 
the people with lived experience who actually are authentic in terms of what they do. So just thinking aloud, um, look at what Julie Bentley, when she was chief executive guides and how she changed the guides so that they were putting young girls and women at the forefront of all their work to talk about the experience of, of young girls and women rather than doing it for them. I think that's where we are best as, as a sector and I think that's that's the direction of travel that, that Comic Relief have been moving on. I also think we're best as a sector when we aren't talking about people as as victims or as just as beneficiaries or as recipients of of what we do so hence the sort of the savior sort of element of mm. of what sort of Lamy said when actually we instead see people as wherever they are in life everyone has assets everyone has skills and knowledge and talent and actually our role in always is to try and find out what's best about people and strengthen what's best about them. So I, I think, again, some of some of our best messaging as a sector is about sort of doing that. I guess also my reflection here, and, and this is where it gets more difficult, there are some quite uncomfortable truths that sometimes some of the images that we're talking about now and, and some of the media that we're talking about now that we rightly feel uncomfortable about I think are the most effective in terms of fundraising and, and in terms of a call to action. So I guess my my top line sort of almost sort of summary of, of what does feel like a really complex and contested subject is that I think we're finding our way. And in finding our way, in, instinctively it feels like putting the voices and the experiences of those where we are trying to help putting those at the forefront of what we're trying to do has to be sort of the way forward mm-hmm. uh, uh, in doing this and not just putting them forward in terms of PR terms, but also putting those people forward in terms of shaping what it is that we're actually doing. Mm-hmm. So to give you another example, look at how lots of the international development charities are moving their headquarters to the global south about how they've internationalised and the international arm has, is no longer based in the UK but it's actually based in the global south and there, and it's the global south that is setting the strategy for, for the international organisation and, and indeed some of the domestic arms. Mm. I don't know if I'm avoiding your question of <laughs> A little all bit. of this, but I think, difficult yeah, stuff. It is really difficult stuff. And I think I think what that one picture that Stacey Dooley put out on what I think was her personal Instagram, she wasn't making a fundraising ask. She wasn't making a statement. She was obviously making a statement about what she was doing in her work, but there wasn't much commentary to go with that. Um, So I think it's great that it's opened up all the debate and the bits that you've been talking about here. But I don't know, my view is that Comic Relief are absolutely bang on getting her to do it. She's a really credible documentary maker and um, it may have felt what more comfortable, more authentic if it was a black woman doing that as opposed to her. But I think, you know, this is about, this is about marketing and PR and getting the message out there. And I think she was a really good choice, personally. Um, so I think in response to that, I think we've got to stop seeing this as a binary sort of either or. 
you, yeah. you either have Stacey yeah. Dooley or you have someone that we have no recognition of, yeah. but who is authentic in a very different way in, in terms of they have lived experience. And I think the point is, is that we need both. We need all these yeah. sort of different elements. And but that's what's not represented in this argument, is it? It, you know, that you take one picture from Stacey Dooley's... In, I'm like a pro-Stacey Dooley person yeah. now, but you take one picture from her Instagram account and then we're saying this is what Comic Relief is doing. It's doing the white saviour thing again. And it's like, hang, hang on a minute, let's just take a step back. I don't even know what's, what the rest of Comic Relief's sort of celebrity engagement strategy yeah. looks like, you know, but, um, you know, they're obviously... Well, well, it's interesting that you say that about, and, and of course, the other thing that is missing from the debate that I can see at the moment is, okay, well, in the countries where Stacey Dooley has just been, where's the voice of those people in this argument? What do they want? How do they feel about this? Mm-hmm. It's at the moment, it's, it's predominantly Western middle class yeah. liberals having this conversation. Yeah. So, again, I think that there's a sort of an element here where we're all sort of learning and sort of finding our sort of way forward about what is the best way to, to achieve the social change goals that I think lots of us actually do agree on. So let's move on and talk a bit about funding. Um, you have a lot of good banter on Twitter about what you consider to be good practice or not uh, when it comes to grant making. Can you talk to me a bit about that? Um, well, yeah, I guess I do talk quite a bit on Twitter uh, uh, with colleagues about some of the grant making stuff that, that you sort of see. I mean, inevitably, you come across both good and bad practice. The thing that sort of occurs to me in the first instance is that sort of uh, that great leap forward that was made uh, uh, in the sort of uh, hospitals in the sort of the early Victorian period, which was uh, to do the sick no harm. Some of the best grant making actually is adding to the capacity of organisations but some of the not-so-good grant-making at times, it strikes me, uh, uh, drains the capacity of organisations in terms of what they do. You can sort of, it strikes me, get sort of very uh, animated about what you might see as innovative grant-making sort of ideas. Uh, I came across something a few years ago where um, a grant-making organisation published the grant uh, proposals that it received instantly and invited the world and, and her dog to then um, comment on those grant proposals before they made a decision. But, you know, actually, I wonder if some of the really innovative grant-making stuff that's going on at the minute is, is in some respects, a sort of a back-to-the-future type approach. Look at the Lloyds Bank Foundation, for example, that are making long-term grants to some organisations, I think uh, up to seven years in some cases. So they're avoiding that sort of short-termism, that that, um, that non-profit starvation cycle type problem where, you know, when you're constantly sort of uh, starved of funds and you're having to go back to the funder. I think some of the really innovative stuff at the minute is about uh, grant makers that are funding core costs. They're thinking about monitoring and evaluation that actually fits with the outcomes that the that the grant seeking organisation is delivering, rather than the outcomes that the grant making organisation is is doing. You know, some of this stuff is not rocket science, and and the examples that that again come to mind are, are organisations like the Ford Foundation in the US that stuck with the sort of the commitment to uh, fund equal marriage for 40 years. I mean, that's, that, that to me is really uh, uh, innovative. 
And then I guess the other thing that I sort of see at the minute that, that I think is innovative, though, though it shouldn't be, are organisations that are asking themselves questions about whether or not they reflect enough the, the people and the communities and the organisations that are seeking to support. I'm sort of really interested in, you've got outfits like the Grant Givers Movement, which is a... Um, coming together of people from diverse communities who I think are involved in grant-making organisations but in other senses are quite different to the people that have traditionally worked in those organisations or traditionally been the trustees. And they're asking tough questions about the nature of those organisations and whether they are sufficiently imbued, for example, with a lived experience of those that they're trying to support. So I think you've got um, uh, grant-making foundations like the Blargrave Trust that, that I think are really being innovative there at the moment. I guess either way, the point is, is that we've probably got to stop using these phrases like hard to reach. Some of these organisations, they're maybe not quite that hard to reach. It's just that I'm not sure that we're inclusive enough in our approach. So maybe some of the best grant making in the future is going to be much more inclusive in, in sort of how we do things. Yeah, yeah. The Association of Charitable Foundations, Stronger Foundations Initiative seems to be getting some really good content out there and also best practice and principles, etc. for funders to adhere to. Plus, more recently, I've seen that six of the big funders, um, City Bridge Trust, Esme Fairburn, Lankelly Chase, Lloyds Bank, Paul Hamlin and the Tudor Trust are looking to appoint a director of collaboration. So it feels like we're moving in the right direction, doesn't it? The ACF Stronger Foundations Initiative, um, I think that's a really good thing. Um, and I think it's needed. Um, and I think it's been welcomed, actually, as well. I think, for me, the, um, uh, the important thing that Stronger Foundations highlights and it's something we've been seeing at NCVO for a bit now, how much difference you make or, or whether or not you make a difference, that's not enough anymore. How you make a difference is just as important as, as what you achieve, and that applies to foundations as well. So I hope the Stronger Foundations initiative is, is really going to contribute to foundations thinking much more about how they make a difference. So who do you think are the best people or what are the best resources that listeners could look to for information in this area? You know, I said just then that, you know, I mean, some of the innovative stuff has been around for a long time and you can't but help think that going back to classics like uh, Julia Unwin's uh, uh, Grant Making Tango, which must be, what, 20 years old now, where she talked about how funders should think about giving, shopping and investing I think that's just as relevant today as it was when she first wrote it. But there's also a lot of new stuff around at the minute. I see lots of people at the moment reading this book called New Power by Jeremy Hymans, which is very much thinking about how you do social change in a world where I think digital has pretty much flipped the relationship between us as charities and our supporters. So we're as I don't know, a decade ago, we might have thought that, that they were our supporters and that it was their job to sort of resource us and that we were the heroes. I think that world's flipped around now and, and this is what Jeremy Hymans and his, and his co-authors sort of talk about. It's a world where they aren't our supporters, we are their charities. They're the heroes in this now and it's our job to think about how do we knit together, I guess, the sort of the sort of the small actions that, that numerous people increasingly want to take, whether that's aided by their smartphone or otherwise. So New Power, uh, uh, I think it's a book I'd, I'd certainly encourage people to look at. I'm, I'll admit I'm part way through that. 
In the same vein, um, I, I'd probably look at a relatively recent book called How to Resist by the chief exec of, uh, the new chief exec of London Citizens, which is about how do we uh, work alongside grassroots activists and organise people so that they can uh, uh, change the world around them. And it uses this sort of fantastic example of cleaners and uh, one of the major banks in London. But harks back also to some of the social change that we saw in the 60s in, uh, uh, in the Deep South, in the US. And, and, it, and again, it sort of highlights, I guess, that some of the things that we talk about that, that seem like they're innovative or new, they've been around for a long time. But I guess sometimes we forget about these things. I'm also a huge fan of a couple of couple of colleagues from the US. Particularly, I'd sort of point out Phil Buchanan, who is the uh, the president of ACF's equivalent in the US, uh, which is called the Center for Effective Philanthropy. Phil is one of the most sensible, thoughtful people in our sector worldwide, I reckon, and he's also a tremendous advocate for foundations and for philanthropy. Um, Phil's got a book coming out probably in the next couple of months, actually, called Giving Done Right. And the subtitle is Effective Philanthropy and Making Every Dollar Count. That's on my waiting list, and I think that's going to be one of the must-reads in this coming year. And then I guess the final person that I would highlight is someone that I was in a board meeting with last month, a guy called Voulet, who whose blog post appears at nonprofitaf.com. Which is an excellent website name, if ever there was one. And um, I actually did a book review of his book, well, that he co-authored. It's called Unicorns Unite, How Nonprofits and Foundations Can Build Epic Partnerships. So I'd recommend checking that out as well. Uh, Vu is... Um provocative, he's laugh out loud funny, and he's an absolute master of pointing out the paradoxes in our sector that infuriate you and the things that sort of everyone else outside our sort of charities world that they sort of take for granted. So the uh, the non-profit AF uh, uh, website where Voulet blogs out every week is well worth a read. Brilliant. Well, that feels like a really good place to end. Thank you so much for your time and for all the information and resources that people can follow up with been really great talking to you thanks beth here are the things that stood out for me from my chat with carl first of all trust in charities so we need to be making changes to our practice and then demonstrate the impact of these changes rather than simply broadcasting to the public and a really good example of that is what has been achieved through fundraising regulation whether we like it or not and the drop-off that we've seen in complaints about charities fundraising practice The second thing is about knowing when you're well-placed to contribute to a conversation. So do you have the expertise to make a meaningful contribution to the debate? So I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but it's useful to consider when you have Twitter open on your phone and you see again that the Daily Mail has covered something or something isn't quite um, as diverse as you think it should be, for example. Thirdly, there is a ton of information within this podcast about grant making practice, people you should be following and things that you should be reading. I'm off to go and read Julia Unwin's Grant Making Tango, published a few years ago now, but well worth a read apparently. And I see that she's also speaking at Sheffield's um, Festival of Debate. So I'm going to go book tickets for that as well. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please do share on social media if so. See you next time. <laughs>